Welcome home, welcome to the family. You know, I get to say that uh, every week online to my people there. It's so great to say that and see faces when I say that, to be here at the Rochester campus. And uh, last week I was out in Brighton. Love you guys. So thrilled with what God is doing in Brighton. Amazing. Webster, we love you. Um, Maddie, Drew, thanks for hosting my online folks while I'm gone. Great to be here this morning. Well, listen, I think I need to address the elephant in the room. Well, it's not actually an elephant, is it? It's actually a a coffin. And uh, I know this thing is creeping you guys out. I mean, uh, maybe some of you heard me preach before. You know I like to have a little fun up here, and you're wondering, someone coming out of that thing? Is uh, Brad climbing into that thing? Uh, Are they having a real funeral here this morning? But the reason I brought this coffin is because I want all of us to begin with the end in mind. I mean, Stephen Covey said that decades ago. It's good advice, right? Always good to know where you're going before you pull out of the driveway. The solution to being lost is not going faster, right guys? I mean, it's better to know where we're going. It's the only way. To get there. So we need to begin with the end in mind, and there's no more end than this. You see, I think funerals can change us. I know there was a funeral that changed me. Back in July of 1989, I was in my father's and mother's home at my father's side seven months prior to that. My wife, Karen, and I, we had gotten married. I was 27 years old, and a month after we were married, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And in the six months that followed, that cancer went from his lungs to his bones to his brain. And there at the end, he was confused. He was out of touch with the world around him, and he was suffering. And his whole family was there. His friends were there, gathered around. And that night, his own doctor came to our house, came to our house and gave him some medicine to ease his suffering. And we saw that suffering subside and his breaths became further apart. And at 11, 17 p.m. Sunday night, July 30th, 1989, he breathed his last and he was gone. And I always remember that time, because my dad was a veteran of the Navy. He had grown up as a kid, loving and reading the Captain Horatio Hornblower books. He loved stories of the sea. He was uh, a sailor. He had sailboats. My dad had a nautical clock, this brass clock that he kept on the mantle over the fireplace. And even earlier that day, I had looked at that clock, consulted that clock for the time, and it was accurate. And that clock stopped at 11.17 p.m. Sunday, July 30th, 1989. And my dad's funeral changed me. Karen and I were, hadn't been married very long, and for the next two years, I was going in one direction. I was an engineer in the research labs at Kodak, and Karen and I, we start talking, and we start praying, and after two years, we are convinced that God is calling us to sell our house, quit my job, to move to Illinois and go to seminary. You see, funerals can change us. And I think our own funeral 
can change us. And you say, Brad, what are you talking about? I mean, when it's over, it's over. Yeah, but we can start thinking about our own funerals right now. We can begin with the end in mind. We can think about that day. I think it's an extremely helpful exercise to think of our family, our loved ones, our friends. They're gathered around our grave, and how will we be remembered? What will they say at your funeral? Well, I'd like to consider another funeral this morning, the funeral, a funeral for the Apostle Paul, who died nearly 2,000 years ago. You see, we met this man, Paul. We called him Saul at the time, two weeks ago. He was standing near Stephen while he was being stoned, and Paul was approving of that stoning, encouraging that stoning, celebrating that stoning. We saw Paul breathing out murderous threats against the Christians, throwing them in prison, seeking their executions. And last week, Drew told us the story that even this wicked man who was opposed to the gospel, even he was not beyond the reach of Jesus' love. And his life was transformed by the gospel. And this morning, we get to answer the question, whatever happened to that guy? What's the rest of the story? So you see, today we're concluding our eight-week series on Acts of the Church. We spent the first seven weeks of this series covering, covering Acts 1 through 9. And Drew said, Brad, why don't you close out that series? You got Acts 10 through 28. So we're going to do a lot of reading this morning. Now, we, there's no way for us to cover all of those chapters. So I have to fly at an extremely high altitude. And I love movies. And I'll go to a movie because I got excited about a movie at a, seeing a preview, right? Seeing a trailer. So we don't have time to see the movie this morning. But I can give you a preview. I can give you a trailer. I hope it excites you. I hope you see the movie yourself. I hope you actually read the book of Acts. I've been reading through the book of Acts. I've had in my head the sermons that have been preached already. It's made it come alive. I hope this gives you a roadmap and gets you excited about seeing the movie for yourself. But how should we summarize or remember the life of Paul? Well, immediately after his conversion, Paul starts preaching where he is. He said, he's there in Damascus, he's converted, and immediately he starts preaching the very same gospel he had tried to shut down. And the Jewish leaders in Damascus, they get upset, which should be no surprise to Paul because he used to be one of those religious leaders who was upset about people preaching the gospel. And these Jewish leaders start closing in on Paul there in Damascus, and his friends smuggle him in a basket, lower him outside the wall, and piecing the chronology together, we know there's three years in there when he's in Arabia or the desert, and what happens there, uh, we don't know, but certainly God used that time to prepare Paul for a life of ministry. I'm sure Paul prayed, he fasted, and Paul, I'm sure, was in the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures he had spent his whole life memorizing, studying, learning, and said, how did I read this my entire life without seeing Jesus on every page? And he comes out of that exile, and he finally makes his way down to Jerusalem, and he finds some Christians in Jerusalem. He says, hey, guys, I want to join the club. 
And they were like, whoa. But Barnabas steps forward and says, hey, 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 I know that guy. I can vouch for that guy. I've seen there is a genuine work of God in that man's life. He has been transformed. And I kind of feel like if I was in my community group and a friend of mine said, hey, Brad, I think we ought to invite this guy, Paul, to our community group. And I say, Paul, isn't that the guy who just a couple of years ago was trying to kill us? So kudos to Barnabas, salesman of the year. He convinces the Christians that Paul is on the up, up and up. And they take him in, and he starts preaching. And we know what happens, right? He stirs up the religious leaders. He gets run out of town. So Paul goes to his hometown of Tarsus. And Barnabas goes up north to Antioch. And in Antioch, the gospel goes global. The gospel goes global in Antioch. What I mean by that is that Barnabas starts preaching to people who aren't Jews. Now, it makes sense to preach to the Jewish people because all their lives, they've been looking for a Messiah. And Barnabas can say, the Messiah is here. His name is Jesus. But Barnabas starts preaching to Gentiles and says, this Jesus, he's your savior too. And it goes viral and Barnabas runs over to Tarsus. He grabs Paul. He brings him back to Antioch. And for a year, Paul and Barnabas watch the gospel grow exponentially. And this passion, this vision, this purpose takes hold in their lives. And they say, we got to take this gospel to the entire Roman Empire. You see, this has been the first 10 years of Paul's life after he became a believer. And the rest of his life is organized around these missionary trips that he takes. And so Paul takes three round trips. Let's go to the map, okay? I love maps. You like maps? I mean, I grew up with Bibles that had maps in the back in color. But you can see here that Paul and Barnabas, they kind of make Antioch their headquarters, their uh, staging uh, position. And they head out. Uh, they head out through uh, through Syria, through Turkey, they're bending through Asia Minor. They go through towns like Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And in Lystra, Paul is it's going great until these Jewish leaders in Antioch that Paul had ticked off, they hunt him down in Lystra. So Paul, who used to hunt Christians, is now hunted. Maybe he trained those hunters. And they come to Lystra and they stir up opposition. They drag Paul out of the city and they stone him. And the man who once promoted the stoning of others is now himself stoned. And unlike Stephen, whose life was cut short by that stoning, Paul somehow Surprisingly, miraculously, perhaps, he stands up. He's not dead. And then he makes a choice I probably would not have made. He goes back into that city that had just dragged him out for Estonia. But not only does he minister there, he comes back there later. Maybe they were afraid of him by then. But it shows that Paul was not going to let anything stop him from spreading the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas, they make their way back to Antioch on that first trip. And then they head out on their second trip. And now on their second trip, look how far they're going. They're going even further west. And Paul and Silas, they travel all the way past, you can see on the upper left, the Aegean Sea. And there's that town of Philippi up there on the north side of the Aegean Sea. And sure enough, Paul stirs up trouble. He and Silas get thrown into prison. And they're in prison and they are praying, and they're thanking God. 
And they're praising God. And they're singing hymns to God. And the jailer is like, who are these people? And then in the middle of the night, the earthquake shakes the prison. The prison doors pop open. And that jailer knows that if those prisoners escape, it will cost him his life because the penalty for letting prisoners escape is death. So he pulls out a sword. He's going to do the deed himself. And Paul says, wait, wait. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And this Philippian jailer's mind is completely blown. Who are these people? In chains, they sing. Their chains fall off. And they're more, instead of walking to freedom, they're more concerned with my welfare than their own. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole house. He embraces the gospel. He takes Paul and Silas home and the rest of his household is saved. There are, you have got to read this book for yourself. There are so many stories I am skipping. But another favorite story of mine, you see on this second missionary journey, Paul rounds the horn over here and he goes through Athens. And Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world, kind of like the Harvard of its day where the most brilliant minds would gather and debate and discuss the latest theories. And Paul goes there to take the gospel. And I've, he goes to a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill. It's in Athens. You could go there today. I have been there. I've been to Athens. I've climbed this big marble rock and there's not much there, but you get to the top of it and you just realize, hey, this is where Paul preached the gospel to the uh, Greek thinkers of his day. And Stephen preached a message. We heard him preach a message, and he draws all his points from Scripture. But Paul knows these Greeks, they don't care about Hebrew Scriptures. It doesn't carry any weight with them. So Paul starts using Greek poems and literature and quoting their thinkers. And then Paul does this uh, as he's talking to the Athenians. He says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul sees this idol. It says, to an unknown God. Paul says, I know him. I know him. It's Jesus. He can save you from your sins. And Paul does another round around the Mediterranean, a third missionary journey, hitting a lot of the same cities where he visits churches he's been before, going to new places. That first missionary journey, him and Barnabas, they cover at least 1,400 miles. The second missionary journey, 2,500 miles at least. The third missionary, at least 3,000 miles. Scholars say by the time Paul was done, he had traveled at least 10 thousand miles. And these first three trips, they're all round trips. He ends up back near Antioch or Jerusalem near his home base. But he's got another trip to make. This isn't a round trip. This is a final one-way trip. See, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And you see, he makes his way back and he's in, you know, north of Jerusalem, on the coast there, on his way to Jerusalem, he's going through Caesarea, and this is what happens. Luke tells us, after we had been there in Caesarea a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, 
coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner with this belt, of this belt, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So you think Paul said, thank God, Agabus, you got me just in time. I was this close to going to Jerusalem. Well, let's keep reading. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You see, this prophecy doesn't come so that Paul can make another plan. This prophecy comes so that Paul knows without a doubt, that we all know without a doubt that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he knows full well what it will cost. And years prior, Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem. And he told his disciples what it would cost. It would cost him his life. He would be crucified. And still, Jesus went to Jerusalem. And still, Paul went to Jerusalem. And when he got there, the prophecy was fulfilled. He was arrested. Guys, you just, you got to read the book of Acts. There's so many stories in here. There's intrigue. There's plots. They try to kidnap him, kill him. He's smuggled around. But because Paul is a Roman citizen, he is able to appeal his case to the Supreme Court, so to speak. He is able to appeal to Caesar. And that means that Paul needs to go to Rome. So Paul's last final journey, and you guys, you gotta read it. There's just so many stories in there, but he goes through hardship across the sea and he makes his way to Rome. And Rome is where Paul spends the rest of his life. 10,000 miles of travels. He's gone through at least eight modern countries. He's been through Israel, Syria, Turkey, um, Malta, Cyprus, Macedonia, Italy, Greece. He's been to countless cities, poured himself into so many people's lives. And we don't get to see Paul's death in the scriptures. <clears throat> you see, Luke finishes his book, Acts, before, while Paul is still alive. But we do know from history, we know from tradition, that Paul did receive a sentence. And that sentence was death. And under Emperor Nero in about the year A.D. 67, Paul had a right that Jesus did not have. Paul was a Roman citizen. That meant it was illegal to crucify him. So he was given the more merciful death of beheading. And today, if you flew to Rome and made yourself made your way to the Colosseum and walked three miles south, you can see where he's buried. So what did Paul leave behind? Well, he left his writings behind. He left a huge chunk of the New Testament behind. And just to give you some perspective, the New Testament is 27 books. And the Apostle Peter, let's give him credit. Let's say he wrote sort of three books. Um, he wrote First and Second Peter, but what's the other book? Well, he had a disciple named John Mark. He's the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So Mark is written very much from the perspective of Peter, influenced by Peter. So let's give Peter credit for three books. The Apostle John 
He writes a gospel. He writes three letters too, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he writes the book of Revelation. So John gets to write five books in the New Testament. How many books did Paul write in the New Testament? He wrote 13 books. They're not theological textbooks. They're love letters. They're letters to the churches. He's planted in seven different cities or where he sent people to plant churches. They're the people he's poured his life into, like Timothy and Titus and and Philemon, and we know there's countless more. And let's not just think of those 13 epistles that Paul wrote. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is someone that Paul led to faith in Christ. And Luke is along with Paul on the journey, and Luke writes the book of Acts where Paul is very much the hero of the story. And what about the Gospel of Luke, also written by this disciple of Paul, and it's full of Paul's passion for the poor, for the outcast, for the foreigner, for the Gentile, for the women, all people that Paul prioritized. And in these scriptures that Paul writes, they include things like, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of life is etern- but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul knew the life he lived, it was deserving of death. Nothing else would be just, but he got a gift from God that was only possible through Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. Paul doesn't have any bragging rights. We don't have any bragging rights. Not what we deserve is death, but by grace we have new life. And Paul writes, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You say, really, Paul? All things? You mean stonings and whippings and beatings and shipwrecks and jail sentences and even execution? Yeah, all things. Because Paul knew that God used those to grow him. Paul, that God used those things to advance the gospel, all things, work together for good. And I know we're here at Paul's grave in 67, but we can fast forward a little bit. We can fast forward a few hundred years because in 312, the emperor Constantine, a Roman emperor, becomes a Christian. You see, less than 300 years after Paul, Christianity conquers the Roman Empire. Constantine becomes a Christian in 312. In 313, the Edict of Milan makes persecuting Christians illegal. By 380, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, the same empire that beheaded Paul. So what do we learn from Paul? Well, it might be tempting to think about what a leader Paul was and all that he accomplished and this incredible movement that he started, this legacy he had. I want to be that kind of leader. I want to have that kind of influence. Maybe I should do the kinds of things that Paul did, learn from him. Maybe I should think about the way he was a strategic thinker and planner. I mean, that guy came up with a plan to take down an empire and it worked. I mean, maybe it's his adaptability, his cultural sensitivity. He knew how to talk to Jews when he was with Jews and reason with them or with Greeks or Gentiles. 
Maybe it was his effective communication skills. You know, historically, law schools would study the book of Romans because Paul had such impeccable legal logic arguing the case that the gospel was true. Or maybe it's resilience in the face of adversity. I mean, no matter what was thrown at this guy, right? It didn't matter what was thrown at him. Beating, stonings, whippings. He wasn't going to be put off his mission. He was going to stay the course. He was going to get it done. Or maybe the way he empowered and developed others. And if Paul was in this coffin and he was here hearing us celebrate his life this way, he would bust out of this coffin and say, stop, stop, you're entirely missing the point. I had all five of those qualities of leadership. Before I met Christ, I was an incredibly strategic thinker. Nothing was going to knock me off my game. And it made me a killing machine. It made me an enemy of God. It made me a denier of the gospel. It's only because Christ interrupted my life that any of those things were able to be used for any good at all. You see, I don't think Paul would want us to learn principles of leadership. Paul would want us to learn how to die. You see, only by dying and being born again can we be useful at all. You see, the church stands today on the shoulders of a man who tried to destroy it. I mean, how is it that this Paul, this man of violence, now becomes a victim of violence. This man who forcibly sent others to prison, he himself put himself on a path that involved prison. The man who caused so much suffering in the lives of others now suffered for others and suffered for the gospel. How is it that this guy writes the love chapter I mean, you've all heard it. You've been to a wedding. You hear 1 Corinthians 13, and it includes things like this. Love is patient. Here's Paul writing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. Love never fails. And people who knew Paul before he was a Christian say, Paul, you were so easily angered by everything. You kept a record of everybody's wrongs. You let nothing be forgotten. You always sought your own. You always delighted in evil ways. How is it that this man, driven by hate, becomes a champion of love? And I would suggest that we've looked at three, we've looked at some funerals this morning. We've considered the fact that other people's funerals can impact us, like my father's funeral, change the direction of my life. Or we can look at our own funeral. I, I'm sincere about that. I believe that's a helpful exercise to think ahead to what the end of our life might be. But it wasn't any of those funerals that changed Paul's life. You see, Paul knew the funeral we will have is not as important as the one we already had. Because, because when Paul met Christ, he was already in a coffin. You see, Paul writes in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says, that old Paul, he's dead, he's gone, he was crucified, he isn't here anymore. If you see life, if you see goodness in me, that's Christ. 
in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul had already been in a coffin. Paul had been crucified. And everyone here at Northridge who goes through baptism, they publicly proclaim they've been in a coffin too. They've been crucified with Christ. Have you been crucified with Christ? I mean, you might have gifts, you might have ambitions, you might have a direction. I'm telling you, without Christ, you're never going to accomplish anything good or of lasting value. You see, we're coming here to the end of this series, Acts of the Church. And I cannot explain the church historically apart from a risen Christ. I cannot explain apostles who were so scared and timid and fled in every direction suddenly becoming unified and defiant and insisting that Jesus rose from the dead and even going to their deaths defending that unless Jesus really rose from the dead unless they saw it knew it. I know no other way to explain a church taking down an empire and spreading across the world except that that really happened. I know of no way to explain the life of Paul. This man, he was a scholar. He was set in his ways. He thought he knew what the scriptures meant. There was no way he was going to be talked out of it. He was going to go to his grave trying to eradicate the gospel. I know no way to explain his 180 degree turnaround and move in the other direction without him meeting a risen Christ. That's the only thing that could have possibly turned him around. And when we look forward to our own funerals and people gather, what are they going to say about us? You know, I kind of hope they say about me, that Brad, I, I just don't get him. I don't understand. I mean, what was in it for him? I don't, I don't understand the career choices he made. or I don't know why Sally made those financial decisions. I don't know why Tom put up with people who were nothing but a drain on his life. I don't know why Mary suffered so much and was so content and so cheerful and didn't complain. And I don't know any way to explain these lives except they must have met a risen Savior. They must have met a Christ. And when we get to the end of our lives, will your life, will my life be unexplainable without Christ? Let's pray. Lord, you are still working miracles. You are still raising people from the dead. We ourselves have been raised from the dead. No one raises their self from the dead. Lord, you have given us life through Christ. We have been crucified with you, and Christ now lives in us. And Lord, how would we not want the whole world to know and experience that same message? If there's any here who have not yet been crucified with Christ, died to self. Lord, I pray that you bring, perhaps it's some hardship, perhaps it's something in their life that would just make them despair of trying to do it on their own and put their trust in you alone. 
Lord, we lift up your name. Amen.